This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once a week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Friday, January 11th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the, the Democratic Party is one of its most captivating young voices in, I don't know, ever. Headline Politico, exasperated Democrats try to rein in Ocasio-Cortez. This is kind of a classic Politico story. It has some good stuff, but it seems a little bit exaggerated. They do that thing where the words in the quotes are bad, but the modifiers around them make it seem worse. So they are. They do have on the record a few elected officials saying essentially, you know, she probably should stay in her lane a little bit. And they have off the record people slamming Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez a little bit worse. But here, this is the kind of quote that they ran. Ocasio-Cortez got off on the wrong foot with her colleagues, to say the least. It's not unreasonable for people to wonder whether she will come after them, said Rep. Grace Meng, Democrat of New York. But, but here's where the quotes were. Quote, it's not unreasonable for people to wonder, end quote, whether she will come after them. So it's the reporter saying or characterizing what it is or isn't unreasonable to wonder. Maybe the question to Rep. Meng was, well, with her gigantic Twitter following and social media presence, what would happen if she targets you? And then maybe Meng said, well, that's not unreasonable for people to wonder. And then Meng went on to say, and this is also in a quote, and I'm choosing not to focus on if she's going to run someone against someone, but by seeing how we can more effectively work with her and bring her ideas to the table. So in the quotes seems to be an olive branch outside the quotes, at least the specter of a petard. You know, a petard's a bomb, hoisted by one's own petard. The story does go on to list specific uh, Democrats, including Stephanie Murphy and William Lacey Clay, who each survived primaries against Ocasio-Cortez-supported opponents. Yvette Clark, Democrat of New York, says, I think she needs to give herself an opportunity to know her colleagues before passing judgment on anyone or anything. Emmanuel Cleaver's in there calling attacking Democrats obscene. And I noticed a lot of the people in the story were members of the Congressional Black Caucus, a lot of times because they have the institutional power. And just out of curiosity, I did a little calculation. So what I did is I counted up every member of the Congressional Black Caucus, who's in Congress because uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, senators, are also in the CBC. And I calculated how many cumulative Twitter followers they have. So we're talking about 51 different representatives. Some of them are delegates, like from the Virgin Islands and D.C. And they have a cumulative 541 years of experience. Now, for my purposes, I excluded a couple very, very high-profile members of the CBC, maybe a couple who might be as famous as 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they're Maxine Waters and John Conyers, because Maxine Waters has almost a million Twitter followers and John Conyers has over a million. But if you take the rest of them, right, the 51 representatives with the 541 years combined experience and, and contrast that with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has nine days of experience, you'll find that the 51 have 2.2 million Twitter followers and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has 2.3 million Twitter followers. And I include members of the CBC like Elijah Cummings with 257,000 Twitter followers and Barbara Lee with 219 and Ilan Omar, who has 231 Twitter followers. She's also nine days in office. So I'm just thinking about that. Who really is more powerful? You know, this group of the CBC, it's somewhat arbitrary. I just wanted to get a distinct group. Um, They're not all of the Democratic caucus. They have a lot of power within the Democratic caucus. So who's more powerful, those 50 people or that that one person? I mean, 2.3 million Twitter followers. Oh, no. The 2.3 million still can't get her preferred committee assignment. She'll still have to wait her turn politically when it comes to the accrual of real power. She's one vote. There are 50 votes, a little less than 50 if you take away the delegates. But who would you rather be? Who would you rather have representing you? Who are you more scared of? Putting aside if you 100% believe in AOC's passion or policies and her charisma, which is better for Democrats, the one or the many, or just to have diffuse power in the hands of 50 or concentrated in the hands of one? All good questions. My chin is being stroked as I ask them. On the show today, it is an Anton Twig. We will do uh, corrections and letters, and I will give a lobster. But also, let me plug Saturday night, tomorrow, the live show that we're doing, which is called Subdue the Guru. It's at Union Hall in Brooklyn. For tickets, go to unionhallny.com. And it will be not just Subdue the Guru, but Subdue the Gura, because David Gura of MSNBC will be there perhaps playing fiddle. So if that's not incentive enough, I don't know what is. UnionHallNY.com. It'll be a great live show. And before the Antan Twig, in fact, right now, I bring you Ian Bremmer. Each year with his group, the Eurasia Group, he puts together a list of the greatest risks the world faces. The top three are increased cyber warfare, U.S.-China relations, and what he dubs bad seeds, meaning potentially explosive problems that will present themselves later while our leaders dither. There's also a category called red herrings. They seem dangerous as political, geopolitical actors, but he's telling us they're containable. So up next, Ian Bremmer is his name. Risk is his game with also some light puppetry on the side. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
Mahalia Jackson and others have sung the song, I Soon Will Be Done With The Troubles Of The World. It's an old Negro spiritual. I don't know if that day will come, but I know that Ian Bremmer will be counting down those troubles every year. He is the president and founder of the Eurasia Group. He puts together the list of the 10 riskiest things going on in the world. Ian Bremmer is also the host of G-Zero World on public television, has a podcast, G-Zero World Podcast. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming back. Always good to talk with you. So last year, you did a video on a cold day on the top of a double-decker bus, right? Yeah, and, and we were freezing our <laughs> balls look, off, That man. looked like the biggest was risk was that bus. <laughs> no one told me what that was going to be like three hours later, you know? Yeah, because it was a pretty long, thorough video. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was... And, and that didn't come out on the first take. I'll tell you that as well. <laughs> so you live and you learn. Yeah. You're not doing that this we year. We didn't do that this year. Yeah, but uh, is, it the, is the world a scarier place or just the bus is a cooler? Uh, environment? Uh, the world is not a scarier place if you're only thinking about 12-month chunks. Right. But if you're thinking about where the world is heading, the world is a much scarier place. Because I have to give you some credit. You don't always say this is the worst year ever, but last year you did. Last year you said, as we looked for the 20 years we've been doing it at the Eurasia Group, this is, I forgot if it was scary, this is the most dire forecast we've seen. So where are we in 2019? Well, 2019, the fact that the global economy is doing well and the fact that we are papering over or working to paper over a lot of big challenges. So North Korea, they're not denuclearizing, right. but we're papering it over, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're going to have a second summit and for the time— North here, Korea was on the list last year because that was fire and fury time. Yep, and it's and not on the list this year. Not, not that right. Trump has solved it, but yep. other things are worse or at least it's maybe a little better. I yeah. mean, Iran, Trump pulls out of the deal, but everyone else is still with it. We're papering it over and they're going to try to like kick it until uh, hopefully from their perspective, the Iranian perspective, the end of a only one-term Trump administration. China, which is the big story, uh, Trump and Xi Jinping are working hard to paper over disagreements Mm -hmm. so that by March 1, we don't have a trade war. Right. Right. It's all fine. But none of this stuff is getting fixed. Not remotely. The structural aspects of the geopolitical environment, both internationally as well as within our countries, clearly heading in an unsustainable and dangerous way. Okay. Brexit was on the list last year. It's not on this year. I follow Brexit news closely. It doesn't seem like much progress has been made. Why did it fall off the list? Brexit is kind of on the list this year. For the first time since I started the firm 21 years ago, we decided to have a special category for risk. It was an asterisk. Mm -hmm. So not one to 10, not a red herring. We said, Brexit, you're an asterisk. So it's like a pun, a risk pun. It is. And, And the reason it's an asterisk is because the likelihood of a second referendum to reverse Brexit is now significant. Mm-hmm. Um, David Miliband, I was with him a couple days ago, former foreign minister, uh, foreign secretary, 30% he gives it. We'd, we'd put it at 20, but still much higher than it was before. Yeah. At the same time, the possibility of a no-deal outcome, leaving the Brits out in the cold, no agreement whatsoever with the EU, is also going up. But, but I don't know, first of all, I don't know, and they don't know what a referendum would be, because you could have a wildly differently phrased referendum. The referendum could be, we'll stay in the EU, or the referendum could be, we'll leave no matter what. Yeah, the most likely referendum would be a, now that we know what the deal on offer is, do you want this deal or do you want to stay in? Right. And the Europeans have already ruled that they would accept uh, the UK to have a do-over if, if they wish. Now, I think they need to do best two out of three. 
right? I mean, <laughs> you can't, away? Yeah, I mean, you can't just like have one more vote and say, right. okay, we're 50-50. I mean, yeah. you know, you got to have at least You don't ever have to have three. a Brexit if you keep having Brexit votes. That is clearly true. Yeah. Or we could just say what we really know to be true, which is that no one out there, including Prime Minister May, has any idea what's going to happen with Brexit this year. Why don't we just admit that? So what in the past years have you gotten the most right and the most wrong? Well, the most wrong, I mean, Trump's election. Oh, my God. I mean, we, we completely underestimated the possibility that he could become president. I mean, that's a, that's a huge whiff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I can tell you why I think that happened. But, I mean, the, the fact is that uh, when, I, when people ask me now about 2020, and I have plenty of reasons why I believe that Trump is going to have a harder time in 2020 than he did in 2016. But I also always say, but don't trust me too much on this because, you know, I really underestimated him in 2016. Yeah. It's important to do that. But in terms of stuff we got right, I mean, damn, the G0. We talked about a G0 geopolitical environment with an absence of global leadership bef- well before Trump. So if people seven understand G0 as opposed to you got your G20 G7, and your G yeah. and your G7 and all the countries that are the, we are the big responsible countries and G0 is a thumb in the eye to that entire idea. Yeah, and the foreign yeah. po- the entire foreign policy establishment said, "Yeah, really interesting theory, but that's not happening." And they thought no. it was almost science fiction. First of all, the the erosion of liberal democracies around the world and their unwillingness to provide the kind of support for traditional U.S.-led alliances and institutions, like, that's happening everywhere but Japan. And then secondarily, the rise of China, right? And the fact that they have consolidated an authoritarian regime under Xi Jinping, now leader for life, we assume, and state capitalism, they're not becoming more like us. Mm-hmm. They're actually doubling down on an alternative system, one belt, one road, to the U.S.-led institutions. The thing that we did not appreciate as an exacerbating factor was that the role of technology would move from supporting democratic movements, failed Arab Spring, to supporting big data, social media segmentation, surveillance, and authoritarianism. Yeah. And, and leading to the tech lash that we have in the world today. Even with the U.S. right now, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with senators recently on both sides of the aisle trying to convince them that having something that feels like an industrial policy on artificial intelligence and 5G, given the fact that the Chinese are increasingly fragmenting the global system, we need to think about. The Chinese are developing their own very strong technology companies, and in 2019, they are a tech superpower. And when you and I started talking to each other a few years ago, they weren't. So that's fast. And to respond to that, you'd actually want to be investing a lot in tech as the most important strategic sector in the West with governments. And yet, when you think about what they're doing to our societies, reacting to populism and nationalism, you say, no, 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 you want to break these guys up because they're hurting us. So that's a serious problem. Yeah. How much of the rise of Chinese tech is stealing or playing off what uh, Western tech has already invented? Um, Over the last 40 years, uh, probably a high majority Over the last few years in key areas, increasingly less so. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Chinese today are ahead of us, the United States, in facial and in voice recognition. And so, I mean, if they're ahead of us, then that means that they're actually the ones that we would be trying to copy or steal from. And the reason they're— From piggybacking to leapfrogging. Right. And there's animal analogies. And— Yes, from <laughs> piggybacking to leapfrogging. That sounds so euphemistically dirty, and I yeah, can't even visualize I don't know. We're it. Like the Thomas Friedman's worst book. I you, don't know. <laughs> no, we, we, we've, we would never be able to approach that. But I understand. I appreciate your effort. 
Um, I, I, I think that um, the reason is because they've got 1.4 billion people, none of whom presume any level of privacy, not even American levels of privacy. And, you know, you throw enough raw computing power at that and you're just going to do exceptional deep learning. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they just literally – a lot of people that are in the AI field will tell you that amazing data and decent coders and scientists will today in most applications beat – mediocre data and extraordinary scientists. And and that is a kind of scary thing when you think about the Chinese as an antagonist and competitor to the U.S. Now, to play devil's advocate or dragon's advocate here, if risk is defined as hurting, affecting the median person, and if China is rising, I mean, China alone is a sixth of the world's population. They, of course, have allies. Maybe their rise, you could argue, helps a few hundred million Pakistanis, whoever else they're helping in Africa. Why is that a bad thing? Is it because the way they, they spread out the benefits of the rise of uh, the Chinese state? What are you, a closet panda hugger? I'm, <laughs> I'm being dragon's advocate here. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I'm going to see how many different animals I can come I up with over the course of the podcast. love to be a panda hugger. Okay. I hear it's like very expensive. Had, like yeah. Hundreds of dollars. I know, but so rewarding. Oh, yeah. um, look, it, it, it almost doesn't matter if we think it's a good thing or a bad thing uh, because it's going to happen, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. 1.4 billion people that are already middle income and are continuing to grow unless they fall apart. And for the Amer- Americans, by the way, the only thing worse than China taking over is China falling apart because the impact yeah. on our economy would be incredibly bad. I, but, I guess what I'm asking is rise of China, here's why we sh- here's why this will make our lives worse. Let me tell you why it's bad. Yeah. It's, it's, it's obviously bad for one very clear reason, which is that China is not just going to be the most important driver of economic growth. But when the Chinese government is the most powerful in the world, even if we like their values, right? The fact is that the quality of their governance as a middle-income country, the priorities they need to focus on are just of a lower quality than those of advanced industrial democracy. I mean, when we were a medium-income country... We didn't have the luxury of talking about great governance and talking about, you know, sort of all of the first world problems that we have today. So instead, you're going to have a world where the most important government has second world problems. And that is a really low quality of governance. Especially if you're in the first world. Yeah, the quality of governance globally will be going down as a consequence of that. Now, that's one problem. The second problem is you also have to deal with the transition of power. You have to deal with how it is that the Americans and Chinese accept that our comparative places and influence globally are going to change. I mean, are the Americans prepared to actually compromise fundamentally on some of the things that we believe to be sacrosanct and right with a country like China? American indispensability and exceptionalism and the arrogance of our foreign policy establishment, most of which is articulated by older white men who have never had to challenge those views before, tells me you should be pessimistic about that. And the Chinese, by the way, also feel like for a couple hundred years, they've been held down and repressed by these developed colonial countries, mostly the Europeans, not the Americans, but still Mm -hmm. they're prepared to lump us all together. Like that doesn't, that story doesn't historically end well. Uh, Eight, nine, and 10 on your list are Mexico, Ukraine, and Nigeria. Let's just quickly take each. Mexico is a risk not because the new president is a bad guy or has a bad heart. I mean, he he does actually want to do the right thing for the working class in Mexico that has been left adrift for a long time. And certainly their wages should go up and certainly their education should improve. And certainly he has to deal with their security. 
but he doesn't have that much competence economically. He's making a lot of big mistakes, and the people around him do not have the experience. So the danger is, as the world economy is going to be in a different part of the cycle, things are going to get more challenging, you don't have the ability to handle that well. And the peso is going to get rocked as a consequence. That's bad for Mexico. Okay, but I don't think that Mexico has been doing great. I don't think that it was great under Fox. I look at all these uh, these drug cartels that seem to be the law in a lot of the provinces. In a lot of the states. Economically, um, the country as a whole was doing okay. Uh, the workers were not doing so well. Certainly from the security perspective, they were doing only worse. And, that the, and the initial numbers under Lopez Obrador, that doesn't seem to be changing. That's a, that's a very structural problem. But I'm talking about like spending $5 billion, not on a wall, uh, but on a airport that they're deciding not to build. Oh, my God. I mean, like, that's a really yeah. stupid thing. I'm talking about gasoline lines right now because they're like, people are stealing gasoline, so let's shut down all the pipelines and we'll truck it through, but we won't have a good plan for how to do that. This is actually execution risk. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. implementation. It's it's kind of fairly boring, but it's really important for, yeah. like, the people. Ukraine. Again, like Mexico, things don't seem to be great here. How much worse can they get? Uh, well, you've got parliamentary and presidential elections in Ukraine. And if you think the Russians intervene in the U.S. elections, you see nothing before you're talking about Ukraine. So it's definitely uh, going to be more challenging for them this year. Uh, and they'd be higher than a number nine risk if anyone cared. Yeah. Nigeria. Same thing. They'd be higher than number 10 if people cared. The Democratic Republic of Congo, again, much worse than Nigeria. Yes. Uh, but, but so what's the contagion risk of Nigeria? Well, Nigeria's is the largest economy in Africa. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. And uh, big elections And I've read projections up. that Lagos could have 100 million people within, say, 50 years. Yeah, I mean— Oh, my God. You, you know, the, the demographers are most uncertain— about the 50-year projections of Africa. Yeah. Because it has so much to do with will these low-income countries become medium income? Because if they right. do and they get urbanized and women educate well, and that's the improves, thing. Send they'll girls, stop having kids. Sending girls to school seems to be like the magic bullet. It's hard to do. It's but, such an yeah. obvious thing to do and yet when you have really bad governance in these countries, making that infrastructure happen is really challenging. You know, it's not about the money. The money is there to get everyone schooling. It's about the bad politics. And that's why focusing on political risk is increasingly so important. And now I'll ask you about the red herrings. So you're talking that MBS and also the new president, Bolsonaro of Brazil, obviously they have policy stances that are troubling, but why don't they make the list of biggest risks? Well, in Brazil, they don't make the list because um, the Brazilian uh, institutions are very strong. Yeah. Um, I mean, the minister of justice under the new president, Bolsonaro, was the Supreme Court justice who actually impeached Lula. He is cleaner than clean. And already there's a little bit of a scandal around Bolsonaro's son. It's small. It's getting public, right? They'll go after everyone there if they end up trying to steal cash or doing things that are illegal. So the fact that Brazil has institutions that stand up will constrain Bolsonaro. And by the way, his new political party doesn't have all that much support in Congress. So he's very popular. He's going to need to work and compromise with other parties to get things done. That is usually not a route for authoritarianism. Right. I mean, The Economist did a cover like two months ago saying that Brazil was kind of heading towards dictatorship. That was insane. And I, I've got to tell you, I've been really disappointed. Yeah, except every American magazine has done the same thing with our country. And yeah. I think it's insane, but it's something but, to worry about. But The Economist is supposed to be better than that, right? right? I mean, right. they're sober, but Brexit's kind of made them crazy a little bit. <laughs> yeah. and, and why MBS uh, in general? Because Saudi Arabia has always been like this. We just have uh, a one very tangible example with the uh, killing of Khashoggi. 
No, uh, it's it's really because Mohammed bin Salman has uh, is in a very stable spot domestically. He's the crown prince. He's going to stay the crown prince. There's no real threat to the kingdom. Oil prices are lower right now, which means they're going to have to run bigger deficits. That's not a 2019 issue. It's a longer-term issue. You may have noticed that Yemen is not in the headlines recently. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is because MBS, under more pressure internationally, finally accepted a ceasefire deal with the port of Hodeida, which means that we're able to get away from what has been the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. That's a good thing. So do you think he's rational and makes good choices? I think he's 33 years old and thinks he's God in Saudi Arabia, which yeah. is a problem. It is. Uh, I think that anyone in that environment would have a hard time not believing that their excrement doesn't smell. Um, but uh, but I don't think he's stupid. And uh, I think he has some good advisors around him. And I hope he's getting more. And that uh, over time, I think there's some learning going on. All right. I want you, my just listeners, to know that most people would pay thousands of dollars for this amount of time and insight from Ian Bremmer, who is the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, also the G-Zero World podcast and his PBS show. And I have to plug, uh, at the end of that PBS show, they do a puppet segment. It is the best public affairs-driven puppet segment since I think uh, Jim Henson sat in on Firing Line for those two weeks. There you go. Thank you, Ian. Good to see you, man. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel, it is an Antan twig, our name for a three-week period and recurring bad breath not due to illness. That was a commercial when I was a kid, simple chronic halitosis. Our name for recurring bad breath not due to illness. I looked it up. It's everyone's name for recurring bad breath not due to illness. The other big commercial of my youth was, I don't remember what it was for, but people were happy to see Vetus Gerolitis. He was, he was selling something. Tennis player. Vetus Gerolitis. I <laughs> love that. So on the Antan twig, 
I, I interact with you as the listeners. I talk about the things you tweeted and emailed. And I issue corrections. But also what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain. So two days ago, there was an episode called The Kids Are Not Alright. And I, I did an Irish accent. Now this is what aired on the show. Oh, no, you don't, Danny. I want to get into the Irish accent. Fancy a wee place to rest your feet within the gig economy. We've got a wee cold brew machine. Can give you a trifle of the caffeine buzz. I want you to know that when I tape the show... Pierre and Daniel listen to me and they cut out the flubs and the parts that I don't want in. And that part where I said, oh, no, you don't, Danny. I just want to get into the Irish accent. That's just to get me into the Irish accent. I can't just start an Irish accent from scratch. I've got to do a little Lucky Charms commercial or a little Caddyshack. Oh, no, you don't, Danny. We work. Oh, it is a fine piece of work. You know, it's not a good Irish accent, but it sounds like a comically bad Irish accent is what I tell myself about my Trump, my Irish accent, my English accent. Oh, no, you don't, Danny. Anyway, peek behind the curtains. So now to the corrections. Corrections, another word for that, or the red lines you put on an assignment. And speaking of red lines, turns out Cleveland does have a subway. The red line is subterranean in parts. I correct the Norm Koenig, maybe Koenig, I'm going to say Koenig, wrote in. Because uh, at one point I called Johan Kepler a Dutch lens grinder, and he said, actually, Mike, I like the well, actually, that's fine, you're, you're educating me, Norm. Well, actually, Mike, Johan Kepler was German, not Dutch, to which I said, yes, but by Dutch lens grinder, I meant the lens, lenses he ground were Dutch. That's, that's what I meant. No, I didn't. Joan Wiener Levin writes, I just listened to the episode where you interviewed Matt Green. This is the guy who walks every block of New York City, and he's, he's obsessed with barbershops with the word cuts, C-U-T-Z, or maybe with a K, in their name. And I was obsessed with, you know, I have a theory that there are four words that are in most restaurants' name. They're Luck, Garden, Dragon, and Phoenix. Between those four words, half of the restaurants will have them. Joan wrote in saying, I want to present you with a small corner of the restaurant world with which you might be unfamiliar. Names of kosher Chinese restaurants. I, I am unfamiliar. And there's a lot of puns going on that combine the Hebrew with the Chinese, apparently. There's a place called Mitsuyan, and in Hebrew, Mitsuyan means excellent. There's Chosen Garden, chosen, get it, Chosen Garden, love that. And Tianli Chow, Tianli means give me, give me Chow. And then she tells the story of a barbecue place with a name that means the Holy One, blessed be he. And it turns out the uh, kosher rabbi said, little too sacrilegious to be delicious. Frank Yellen wrote in saying, in your discussion of mispronunciations, you mentioned mispronouncing words that you're more likely to have read than heard. This is true. And early in the episode, I said something like, an evolution, Pace Darwin, as it were, and he tells me that Pace, meaning with due respect to the preposition, is pronounced passe or pace. And I looked it up and I think he's right. There is no way I'm going around the world saying, well, you know, pace Darwin. Even in the most erudite circles, I should get beaten up for that. So I will perhaps write it. I will not be saying pace out loud. Pache Frank Yellen. And now we come to the part where I give out the Antan Twigs Lobstar, also known as the Lobstar of the Antan Twig. So we're talking about how the Washington Post has gone with the infinite Pinocchio to uh, really chasing Donald Trump. They're, they're not just uh, four Pinocchios, not enough, but if we give an infinite number of Pinocchios for all the stuff he says and never corrects, that, that'll call him to the carpet. 
And I was wondering that, you know, with one or two or three or four Pinocchios, there is a sound effect associated, a slide whistle. But with infinite Pinocchios, you know, what, what sound effect really applies? Thomas Catron writes in and says, the shepherd tone works pretty well. It's a little drawn out and painful compared to your classic nose extension slide whistle. And then he sends me a clip and let me play you some of that. Okay, I like it. It does sound a little like a Pinocchio, but also being at the same time haunted by the ghost of Pinocchio after Pinocchio died in a horrid marionette fire. And also he perished. What went with him was a terrible secret. So it's very, it's disturbing on a few levels. I guess this probably approximates the mood of the country. But then, and so that you're the runner up. You're almost the lobstar, Thomas. But I got to give the true lobster of the Antan twig to Judo Smirkhider can't be a real name, but he's at Donnie Drilly also can't be a real name. But apparently he made, he put together a sound effect specially chosen just for us, a bottomless Pinocchio. Now what I think this sounds like is a little like the shepherd tone, but also with a commentary from the fire truck responding to the three-alarm fire where Pinocchio had burst into flames. So it has the infinite lying of the Pinocchios, but also the first responders who are probably being furloughed at the time. So they don't need no water. Let the lying puppet burn. Burn, lying puppet, burn. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They've combined and they have now issued their biggest risk for 2019. It's the bird box challenge in this nonsense. I'm so angry. People with their blindfolds and walking into walls and such. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. Her biggest risk for 2019, trapeze accidents. Trapeze accidents. The gist our biggest risk for 2019, that Baby Shark grows up and doesn't realize how much we cared. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>